Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunawong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 4th of March. Indeed. 2020. (laughs) I was going to say April. Because, as we know, historically, I always get my months wrong. <laughs> um, it's, an, it's another week. Uh, we're, we've got Edwin, Jess and Rob in the studio. Hello. What's your week's been like, guys? They've been okay. Actually, I did want to start today Ooh. with a... <laughs> I've been dwelling on this fact quite... I've been telling everybody I know. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, so I'm naturally an early riser. Um, but this year, 2020, has been a struggle for me to try and like, get my early rising in order mm-hmm. for work, whatever, other commitments. Um, I came across a little-known fact that there once was a profession called a knocker-upper. Have you ever heard of this? I have. Have you heard of it? Yeah, okay, so... Like manual alarm clock? Well, no, but I'm pretty sure this is where it comes from okay. because in the 1930s in East London, they used to, actually used to get usually women to wake up workers at early hours in the morning by, like, shooting dried peas at their windows. What? Yeah. Instead, because alarms, alarm clocks were so expensive and But then who wakes up unreliable. the pea shooters? Like, well, what's, <laughs> what's the flow on? I think they were just really natural. I think rises. they just never went to bed. <laughs> what if there's, like, a cascade of pea shooters, like, at different hours? A, a hierarchy kind of thing. <laughs> you can have a thesis on this, honestly, because I'm, I'm telling everyone I'm genuinely... I love it. I love the fact that it was peas. I know. Like, like who not, thought? Well, someone's like, mm, oh, if we do rocks, it's not very sustainable. Yeah, yeah. Crash but the windows. But they actually shoot them through like a straw. Like, like, like a, yeah, like, like a blowpipe. Sp- yeah. I'm surprised Damn. it's loud enough to be able to wake someone up. I think that's what I thought too. I was like, really? Like, are they actually going to wake up? Actually, from that? that's but... true. Also in London, mm. which was not no because it's London, right? Yeah, not yeah, the quietest. It's not place. known as the quietest place on <laughs> and earth. And 1930s, so like construction. Yeah. I, yeah, I just it was mind-boggling for me to come across it. I thought it was a joke, and then no. Could you imagine walking seriously. down the street in the morning just seeing lots of little green peas down the street as you walk to work? Oh my goodness, you're right. Or I wonder if I wonder if they're really frugal and like they collected all their peas. Uh, <laughs> like, no, no one's gonna get this pea today. This is just this you're right. This is yeah. opens up more questions than it answers. Does, yeah. Which is frustrating in one way. Yes. <laughs> it's like um, you know, that, that question of like, if you could go back in history, where would you go? Jess is like <laughs> I'd go talk to one of these pea East people. London. I yeah. wanna know how she does it. I wanna know how Can she I please does. Yeah. I feel I feel like we should inquire the BBC and do a Doctor Who episode on it so we can yeah, absolutely learn about that. Definitely, like of time. a horrible history, probably should have covered it, but yeah. Horrible history probably did cover I, us somewhere, but. Yeah, that's okay. You're right. <laughs> There's a gap in our historical understanding and curriculum. Yes, uh, Rob, anything else? Um, I actually saw a really interesting film, or Doco, this week as part of the Transitions Film Festival, cool. which, good shout out. Um, nice. The film was called Cooked Survival by Zip Code, and it was, it was a very. I guess, alarming film to watch. It was essentially about this little-known heatwave that happened in 95 in Chicago, mm. and there were over, I think, 700 deaths related to the heatwave, and they map out where most of the deaths occurred, and mm. unsurprisingly, in areas that don't have services. Um, but the film was making this really strong point of, A, there is so much that's built up to that being the outcome in terms of policies being built into the city and which areas get 
investment and sort of development. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, this idea of no many, not many people know about this heat wave, yet 800 people died and hundreds of people wow. are dying every year mm-hmm. from heat waves and other heat-related illnesses. Mm. And so they're kind of making this point of in the era of climate change, it's kind of like there's the expression that history is written by those mm-hmm. who won. It's yeah. kind of this is almost like disasters are remembered by those who have power and influence. Mm-hmm. And so all these people who don't have any kind of say in how their cities are being developed, their kind of disasters are being swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's this really important point about obviously thinking about the broader population and who actually climate change is actually affecting and how we should be looking at protecting them and helping them in, in the preventative yeah. case rather than the... Yeah. What happens of, when it happens. What happens when it happens, yeah. yeah. So it's That's really interesting. Really interesting. Would recommend watching. It's a really yeah. great documentary. Okay. Yeah. Um, my, my fact's not really a fact. It's more <laughs> of an experience. I've been having... Um, some two close friends went overseas over summer. Mm. Terrible. Just... <laughs> horrible of them did not take me with them How would not write <laughs> um, but i've been learning uh, more about kind of berlin and uh especially berlin's kind of uh, relationship with its history which has been really fascinating mm-hmm. to learn about because they're talking about uh how berlin actually as a culture uh, as a city confronts its obviously contemporary history mm-hmm. and further back and it was really fascinating just to hear about how they go about doing that and the vibe that you get in the city which is mm-hmm. very like not at odds with it. It's very at home with its character and who it is in the moment mm. through all the different kind of, you know, institutions it's set up that, that still mm. pay homage to, you know, the, the atrocities committed in World War mm. II and, uh, and beyond. Yeah, because my understanding is that they have sort of like they have plaques and memorabilia okay. saying, you know, this is what happened, both mm. good and bad. Yeah. And they try and be as somewhat objective as possible. Yeah, yeah um, and the, what my friend was saying is it comes off actually really well. You come away with a really informed opinion, yes. mm. but also really complex understanding with mm. it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's just, it's just really fascinating, yeah. I thought, from listening to it. Um, the- they mm. do really good things with educating anyone who visits that place and themselves yeah. as to what happened. And yeah. it's, yeah, it's... Yeah. Mm. So kind of, I don't know. I, I thought it was like a point of interest. Yeah. <laughs> um, apart from that, though, on the show today, we've got uh, a pretty nice lineup. We've got coming up alternative news, which Jess and I will take today. Mm-hmm. And then we've got uh, a pre-recorded kind of conversation. Now, Sam from Geelong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, people might not have heard about this. So Geelong mm-hmm. spent $8 million installing Sorry, a new bike path and it won all these awards and, you know, it's great, it's mm. green and everything. And now because it's reduced, I believe, the number of car lanes, now people are complaining that it's increasing traffic. Mm-hmm. So now the council is spending $2 million to remove it. And so this is going to be a discussion about that. ABC Radio National... Uh, actually was covering this story and it was really funny because a guy called up and was just like, how dare, it might have been Simon, but it was like um, this, this guy of the, the Bicycle Association was going, we need to protect this bike path. And he's like, how dare this Melbourne inner lefty comes on our show and talks about, you know, what we need in Geelong. Get back, you know, how dare you come. And uh, the guy who was being interviewed head of the bike association is just like i live in geelong and um i represent only geelong bike riders yeah the geelong bicycle user group yeah, yeah. so it was, it was like I, I heard this news coming up in mainstream and i was just like ah um after that we've also got an interview with luke taylor yes so he he, he actually spoke at another film for the national uh, for the transitions, transitions film, film festival. festival and it's on a really interesting topic that's come a lot more in the last year on geoengineering which mm. is the 
process of altering the Earth's atmosphere, which is very controversial for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be discussing that and the, sort of the ethics behind it. Cool. Uh, and then we'll be kind of coming up to an interview at 8 o'clock. Yes. Uh, so that was just a little pre-record that we did, that I did the other day with Jessica Morrison from the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. We, I chatted to her about the vigil held for the Palestinians at Parliament Lawns on the 26th of February. Uh, this comes. This came at a time when the Prime Minister of Israel, Rivlin, he came to federal parliament and was invited by Scott Morrison to come. Um, we just chat to Jessica about the International Criminal Court and how Australia is kind of breaching that with the support that we are showing for Israel. Mm. Yeah, completely. And finally, uh, wrapping up the show, we'll have Melbourne in Motion, which is a parkour group based in Melbourne, <laughs> which sounds sick, and I'm very excited. Um, <laughs> and that's our show. Uh, just also letting you know, Rob's mentioned it twice now, so I thought it would be worth mentioning. Transitions Film Festival finishes on the 6th of March, so if you haven't got involved, maybe... You've got two days. Get involved, <laughs> yeah. There's a website, so just Google, and yeah, go for Anyway, uh, alternative news coming up. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. Boom, nitty-gritty, So the U.S. online news organization The Hill published an article in late February entitled A Record-Breaking Heat Wave Changed Antarctica in Nine Days. I found this article really interesting because it comes after NASA released images showing widespread melting of snow on Antarctica's Eagle Island. According to the World Meteorological Organization, the heat wave caused record high temperatures for the region. When the heat wave struck, it caused the island on the Antarctic continent to lose nearly a quarter of its snow cover. Um, now, the images taken by the Earth Observatory at NASA are actually quite frightening with a comparison of a before and after shot of the island caused by the heat wave. The aftershot has a dramatic decrease in snow and much more ground visibility with melted lakes ensued. Uh, NASA said in a statement that about 20% of seasonal snow accumulation in the region melted in this one event on Eagle Island. This heat wave has only strengthened concerns about Antarctica's doomsday glacier, Now, the Doomsday Glacier was a a discovery of the water below Thwaites Glacier being more than two degrees above normal freezing temperature, and this is huge, like Mm. really big. Um, If it were to melt, the glacier would cause a mass of water roughly the size of Great Britain to drain out, causing the rise of global sea levels by nearly three feet. So Antarctica's peninsula, which is the area pointing towards South America, is one of the fastest warming places on the planet. In just the past 50 years, temperatures have increased by five degrees on the continent, um, with 87% of glaciers along the peninsula's west coast having receded during that time. These findings also come after research was published this week, showing that half of the world's sandy beaches could be washed away by climate change as a direct effect of the rising sea levels. It's terrifying how how authority figures like NASA or, Mm. you know, our bomb here. Yes. CSIRO here. Just... (laughs) Get completely ignored for the this research. People that we trust for so many things in the past, yet the governments are still just ignoring them. For mm. And people they're blind. Also. They're being, yep, mm. yep, pick mm. and choosing what they believe in. Is that is that your alternative that news? That is my alternative so, news for this morning. Just just, just taking a rather doomsday approach to climate change. <laughs> Sorry, which everybody. Is very fair, seeing we're in, cli- <laughs> in a climate crisis. I've actually got uh, a few wins, mm-hmm. uh, recent climate 
environmentalist wins. And these are reported by 350.org, so I thought I'd just list them for alternative news because you don't hear about these mm. in the media. <laughs> um, of course, because the media is being run by corporate interest and coal interest a lot of the time, you hear about the protests, but you don't hear necessarily about the small wins. So... In Canada's Star region, uh, the largest ever proposed open pit mine has just been shelved. The company Tech Resources said itself that uncertainty over climate policy and protest in Canada had convinced them to pull out. Historic resistance had come from the Indigenous Climate Action Groups, uh, 350.org, uh, and many other groups in the area. They're pushing for the fallout uh, to make space for the Green New Deal in Canada. Mm. So that was extraordinarily exciting because it is an example of long-term protest mm. and resistance contributing to a decision. Um, yeah. of obviously, of course, a few other things. But, like, yeah, exciting. Also, in the Philippines, a new ban uh, was placed on all new coal-fired power station projects in the province of the Antique. Uh, having passed after years of anti-coal protests in the region, the provincial board said that the ban was because of the damaging effects of coal to the community's health, which is massive. I mean, we were talking to um, the Philippines Association just a few weeks ago, actually, <laughs> and he was talking about the holistic effects that of damages that happens to community members. So for the local government to actually recognise that is sick. Uh, hopefully we'll see actual change. It's hard to say because provincial decisions doesn't really change a lot of policy. Like it, it, it's, it's very hard to enforce in some ways. So that's the story to follow. Um, and also what would have been Latin America's largest open uh, pit coal mine was actually stopped in federal court this Friday. This was located in the Rio Grande uh, do Sul in Brazil. In Brazil. And uh, the court said that the company's the coal company's failure to consult the local indigenous population was a key factor in being rejected. Uh, now, family farmers, indigenous communities, and fishers, as well as 4.5 million people, uh, are safe from this sort of this 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 threat, this coal mine. So that's very exciting. Um, and again, that was a huge part of that was protest. And finally, I also I thought I'd reference some corporate climate change actions now it's very hard for me not to be skeptical about greenwashing and stuff like that but uh british oil giant bp has actually decided uh as of last week to leave the minerals council of australia uh the P bp is considered the peak lobby group for coal and just last month they have announced that they want to be seen as a part of the solution for climate change so we can expect uh, them to kind of yeah hopefully lead a wave of change hopefully amongst the corporate center a lot of people are now putting pressure on uh rio tinto to follow them in their mm -hmm. pace. And Rio Tinto has also announced yesterday that they'll spend $1 billion to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Of course, that's very easy to say. So it's holding them to account. Yeah, there's a reason actually it might all be happening all of a sudden. There's... So every year, the I believe it's the CEO of Blackstone, which is a mm -hmm. big, owns like one of the biggest amount of financial assets in the world. Their I think CEO releases a letter every year oh. at the start of every year, and mm -hmm. this year, and it's it seen to be like significantly influencing um, where the world heads that year. And this year it was about climate change and climate action, and how they as a company won't invest in companies that don't have a climate plan. Yeah, that's really interesting that you do say that as well because I came across a story about Exxon Mobil. Actually, they're they're. The company's saying that it will, it has developed high-tech advances to cut emissions mm. and hopes their framework can aid governments in developing yeah. new regulations. So a lot of these companies are coming out with this sort of new mindset. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, again, it's like, to what extent are they actually going to exactly, them? It's very yeah. easy for them to corporately say, <laughs> to oh, say it, we're going releases. to. However, it, it's fascinating for me because, mm. like, 
especially within climate change policy in Australia, our federal government is abysmal. Mm. But what we've seen leading leading the way, I suppose, is local councils, then state governments. Now we're starting to see more corporate entities. Well, yeah, I mean, like one example is that Microsoft has actually said they're going to be, I think, carbon neutral already, and mm. they're planning to be carbon negative by 2030. And by 2050, wow. they plan to counteract all the emissions they've emitted to date. Mm, so right. that's actually sucking yeah. more from the air through planting trees and so on See, and so yeah. forth. And I think it's like, that's the reason why you want to talk about victories. That's why you want to talk about like, climate victories. Mm. That's why you want to talk about corporates, corporal, corporate change is because there is this starting to be this movement and mm. it does show that pressuring through protests and boycotts and stuff like that and resistance is actually effective to some degree, mm. which is something I think activists can forget when you're at the slog 24-7. So, I don't know, I find that very heartening and, like... Slowly but surely. Yay. Yeah. Yeah, slowly <laughs> but surely. Um, the night time is now 7.16. We're actually going to jump into a quick song and then we will get on with our first uh, conversation from, yeah, a few days ago. Yeah. That was saved by Benny Walker. 
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have a pre-record, and it's in relation to a bicycle lane that was originally installed in Geelong, I believe, for $8 million, and now because it's taken up more road width, there's less car lanes, and so now because people have been complaining, they're now taking out the bike lane um, for another $2 million. So this is a bit of a discussion about what's happening in regards to that down in Geelong. So my name's Simon Howe. I'm involved in Bicycle Users Geelong. We're a group that operates in Geelong that exists to really promote the interests of uh, cyclists, whether it's recreational cyclists, commuting cyclists within the city of Geelong and the surrounding area. I've been involved with the Geelong Bicycle Users Group now for a year and a half or so. I'll come out for two years. Yeah, this is uh, certainly a challenge, this uh, latest development. Can you just give us a bit of a, an overview of how long this uh, separated bike lane was and what it did down there in the Geelong CBD? So it runs along Mallet Street, which is uh, one of the main shopping areas of Geelong. Uh, runs north and south on that road. The impact it's had is it's reduced the traffic flow along that street, so it's brought down from from two lanes down to one lane. It sort of intersects with various pedestrian crossings, got a number of sort of small trees and things of bushes and stuff, and it, you know, it's won a number of awards for the way it's been designed. It's just quite incredible that that's something they would uh, think about um, taking out. Can you just give us a little bit of a, a description of what we're talking about, um, sure. the actual issue, what's happening in Geelong? Yeah, so the issue is that at a council meeting last week, the councillors voted narrowly, mind um, you, they voted uh, six to five for the removal of a separated bike lane on Mallet Street, which was just just constructed around about two years ago, voted to remove that at a cost of $2 million, $2 million for Geelong repairs. And the purpose of removing it was to create a turning lane and to provide, I think, some on-street parking, but essentially to increase traffic flow, uh, traffic access to this uh, busy shopping area in central Geelong. This is of interest to us up here in Melbourne and probably other places, there's been like a long consultation process. Um, this is to involve like this bike lane you're speaking of. It also involves, uh, was it the Green Spine in Mallet? Yes, that's right. Because yeah. where it's interesting up here in Melbourne and other places is, okay, from a Melbourne perspective, we've had you know some things to do with uh, sustainable transport and cycling-related projects, which have gone through lengthy consultation processes and everything seems to be going swimmingly. And then at some point, it gets spiked. And people in Sydney would be listening to this going, this sounds very familiar because it was an opposite situation up there in Sydney, just bear with me for a moment, is that you had a proactive uh, council like City of Sydney putting in bicycle, separated bicycle lanes yep. and you had a, um antagonistic state government who wished to remove a couple of lanes. They, they took out College Street. And it was to do, apparently, to do some of the light rail construction. But you could tell the overwhelming theme of it was political. Could you say this was going on down there or was it... Uh... So it's, it's quite different in Geelong yeah. because this is essentially... I mean, it was an individual councillor's motion, the councillor's Eddie Contelge, 
who has certainly made some uh, some controversial decisions in his time as, as councillor. But it was his motion. It was, as I said, passed fairly narrowly. It was, uh, it was voted six to five. But one of the six was the, unfortunately, was the mayor of Geelong, who is a cycle cyclist herself, which is surprising. But it sort of uh, irked the state government. And um, one of the potential issues with this decision is it does uh, pose a significant risk for future state government funding. That's the interesting um, point of this, yes. Absolutely. So, you know, the state government, is this This doesn't really align with the way they're going. This is sort of just a group of councillors which have, have seemingly made this decision. The interesting thing here is that the decision to create the green spine and to put in this separated bike path was voted on by the previous council, but after the long period of public consultation. So that long period of public consultation decided this was the, the right decision to make. And then that's just been flipped around by this uh, decision by a group of councillors from this meeting last week, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's really disappointing. And, and it's, it's a major backward step for the city of Geelong. With this process, though, was there any vehement public backlash or you were saying that the vote itself was very tight. So was there public feedback? And do you reckon there was a bit of caucusing going on prior to the meeting? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I guess I'm not across the whole of the background of that. And I know that it was was on the agenda uh, for the the council meeting. And there was, uh, as as part of uh, the council agenda, they did take into account the community feedback. But it wasn't a consultation process as such. It certainly wasn't anything like what was uh, undergone to put the bike lanes in in the first place. So, you know, it seems a bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction. They're citing the councillor in, in uh, his motion, citing things like, yeah, I think he, he said that, that there was general disagreement with the uh, the way that the bike lanes were operating from a, it says here, uh, actually the traffic, uh, I'm quoting directly from the, the notes from the, the meeting agenda, he said the traffic, uh, the local population had expressed their disappointment, not disappointment, their anger at, at the way in which this had impacted on vehicle traffic. It, it was said that there was support from this from the uh, local population, but I'm not so sure that that's in fact the case. So how can they base a, a, a council-wide decision upon what feedback, what benchmark? Yes, no, I mean, it, it, it's... It's uh, staggering, really. Yeah, um, this is it, very bizarre because you said that well, there was $2 million that was uh, ratepayers right. and there was yeah. $8 million all up that came from the state government or was that therefore part of it? I think it was part of it, but, um, yeah, I mean, certainly that there was substantial costs in putting this in, uh, in place in the first place and now uh, the council's talking about it's looking like it's going to need a spend of around about $2 million to, to uh, rip it out. Was there any council report presented to council that uh, stated this or was it based upon feels? You know, I'm, I'm trying to get to the yeah. root of this and it just strikes, yeah, strikes me as very odd. Yeah. Of Was um, there a, a council report stating that there was adverse outcomes from this initial project or not, was not, it just a motion put? It was a motion put. I mean, there, 
there was some feedback about um, which you know, generally the, the council tables, uh, general feedback from the community on a range of, it, of issues involving council matters. And, and some of those were not in favour of the green spine, but some were obviously in favour of the green spine as well. The thing is, the actual transcript from the so the meeting minutes haven't been published yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not able, and I wasn't at the meeting myself. Uh, colleagues of mine live streamed it, but um, I wasn't unfortunately able to make the meetings. I'm waiting for the trans, full transcript to be published so we can see exactly what was said and what arguments were put in. Where do we go from here? You said uh, wait for the uh, council minutes to appear at some point. What do you, um, as the bicycle user group, what, what do you plan to do? Yes, so we've uh, got a, a series of meetings planned. We're, we're catching up with some other bicycle groups within the Geelong area to sort of work out a, a plan of attack and, and what can be done in regard to this and sort of what options we have. And so we're just trying to work through those. It's interesting there is council elections set for October of this year. So we're in, in an election year. But uh, it'll be interesting to see whether this decision, which has re- received quite a bit of media both in Geelong and the Geelong Advertiser around a big uh, article the following day, it, it was in the age, it was reported on the ABC. So there was, there was a lot of media given to this. It'll be interesting to see what... what well, it, um, the state government has said that like, this this really put the brakes on any kind of future funding with that council. Yes. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how can people get in t- contact with your group if they want to get more involved with this issue? Yeah, Bicycle Users Geelong has a Facebook uh, presence and also there's a website as well and you can register, you can subscribe through the website to receive update yeah the more the merrier that we would um, love to hear from people who are interested in, in not only this issue but making Geelong a sort of safer better place to, um, to cycle uh, and enjoy You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have another interview. So, as we've been saying on the show, the Transitions Film Festival's on at the moment. There's been lots of great discussions that have been happening over the past few weeks. And one of the other ones that's been really interesting that's come up is about the topic of geoengineering and how it relates to climate change. So, on the line we have Luke Taylor, who is the director of the Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration. Hello, Luke. Hello. Um, thanks for coming on the show. So I wanted to ask, firstly, what is geoengineering and what are the recent developments we've seen in geoengineering technologies? Sure. Well, I mean, this is a quite a, a complex area. There's no doubt about that. And I think the thing with geoengineering is it falls mainly into two camps. There's uh, There's geoengineering that relates to... Um, solar reflection, which basically is the um, intervention into the uh, climate system to prevent or to block some of the incoming heat um, 
that's coming from the sun. Um, and the other refers to, um, again, intervention um, into the system to be able to remove um, some of the um, emissions that have already been released into the atmosphere. So there's a number of different ways that are proposed to do that. Some, some are already um, in process of development, research and development in both of those areas. Um, carbon capture and storage is something that's gained a, a lot of interest um, and recognition over the last number of years. Um, solar reflection, not so much, and it's a highly contentious area um, and that hasn't had as much research and development as carbon capture and storage. But um, there's, there's, a, there's a whole range of different technologies and approaches um, in this area um, where people have um, approached the area of, of, of geoengineering um, from a need um, that they see that's obviously relevant to us to deal with the emissions that have already been released, so which is separate from the need for us to decarbonise. We have this... Um, pressing need to deal with the emissions that are already creating the warming that's in the system currently at the moment. Mm, so all the negative emissions. Exactly. And so you, you bring this point, as you mentioned before, the kind of contentious nature of geoengineering. And so following the screening of the film that was at the Transitions Film Festival called uh, Global, Global Thermostat, what were some of the, the key ethical questions that came out during the panel discussion in regards to geoengineering? Yeah, well, I think. I mean, again, I think there's probably two two sides to the ethical question. Is the ethics of um, around um, not doing geoengineering, and there's the ethics of doing geoengineering. Mm. And I think that poses the big, what I call the the cooling conundrum. You know, we we're we're in a situation at the moment where we already have too much warming um, in the system. And unless we do something about that, then we're facing catastrophic impacts of climate change. So the, the, the ethics of climate change are obviously right before us. The ethics relating to, um, to deploying such techniques are, uh, are quite complex because a lot of the research hasn't been done um, in many of the areas, um, both relating to obviously the deployment of geoengineering techniques, but also in the governance areas as well. So, um, I mean, obviously, when and uh, particularly, um, you know, those of us who are you know in the climate movement and are in the um, environment movement for, for pretty much all of our campaigning history, you know, we've been very um, opposed to intervention into natural systems. It's been sort of the call card, if you like, mm. of the environment and the climate movement. So it, it, it poses really significant questions, obviously, in terms of um, intervention into, um, into natural systems and the effects which we, we don't know um, currently. Um, at the moment, we don't have a good handle on what could be um, what could be the effects, particularly in the area of, of solar reflection, which is um, 
obviously large-scale intervention. Mm. Carbon capture and storage, um, a little bit less so, although people are very concerned about the um, the, the storage, um, which is normally done through underground geological um, methods. Um, so there's just there's just a lot of areas which um, have been very under uh, researched and underdeveloped. Um, but again, the ethical question remains for us if we if we don't look at technologies and techniques and processes which help to effectively cool the earth, we we face catastrophic um, climate impacts. And so the ethical question still remains for us, what do we do given that, you know, vast populations and, and, and other species that have had nothing to do with creating this problem um, are under severe threat? So yeah. it poses a... a a, a really big challenge for us and, and one that I, I personally think that we really need to be um, looking at very deeply um, because of that uh, that ethical question. Mm. Well, I think you raise an interesting point about how the environmental movement is very much about not being sort of protection of the environment. And something that's quite interesting about geoengineering is that it is the process of altering the Earth's atmosphere. And that's from a, a solution to a problem that's being caused by humans altering the Earth's atmosphere in the first place. And so I guess there's a question of is solving the climate crisis through more atmospheric and interaction the best response? Or do less technologically driven ideas have any potential anymore within the climate crisis? Well, I think they certainly do. I think the thing, the point that we're at now, unfortunately, is that um, we need all uh, methods on the table because I think the framing of the problem is, and, and I, I like to start from the point of view with this conversation because I, I, I think it's very difficult to have a conversation unless you put on the table first up front what is it that you care about. And I think for most probably most of your listeners and most people working in the space that we care about all people um we don't care about just a particular set of people on the planet we mm. care about all people we care about all species and all generations and if you start from that point of view then you say okay well what what will it take to be able to to preserve and protect what, what it is that we care about now the situation with climate change is that we we can't afford to produce any more emissions because putting more emissions into the atmosphere is not going to solve the problem. So we know that we have to decarbonise, and the longer that we don't decarbonise, the situation obviously gets worse. Mm. And from my mind, that the situation, the more that you emit, then the more likely at the other end that you're going to have to do more intervention into the system um, to be able to preserve and protect what you care about. So it's absolute. Anybody that's worried about, um, you know, geoengineering and the time period that you would do different techniques of geoengineering um, needs to get out there and really de demand rapid, as in fast as humanly possible, decarbonisation. Um, and that's something that I think that is first and foremost just absolutely a total priority, which wouldn't probably surprise, again, many of your listeners, but as, as fast as humanly possible. So as we're talking about decarbonising the economy, not by 
you know, 2050, not by 2040. This stuff needs obviously to, to have been done yesterday, so it's something that we need to do as fast as humanly possible within under a decade, you would say. So that's the, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is that we know that, that even just going to zero emissions is still not going to deal with the in, in debt, the emission debt that we have already in the atmosphere. So we already have enough in the atmosphere at the moment that would possibly push to 1.5 to 2 degrees of warming. Mm. So, And that's something I think we forget about a lot when we're talking about certainly the targets that were committed to at Paris and so forth is the, the warming is already there from the... Um, and it hasn't played out through the system yet, but the emissions to cause that warming are already in the atmosphere. So we're already under 1.5 degrees at the moment, and we're seeing catastrophic climate effects, as we've just seen over the summer period. Mm. So it is absolutely critical that we do something about those emissions to be able to, again, you know, protect what it is that we care about. So looking into ways biological ways that we can draw carbon um, emissions out of the atmosphere is obviously something that uh, we need to do again as fast as humanly possible because the, the drawdown time um, takes um, quite a long time. You know, to draw emissions out of the atmosphere is something that is, is quite time-consuming. So biological methods are reasonably slow they take quite a number of years, and we've still got this problem then of um, our biological methods can't draw down all the carbon that we need to. Um, so the, the deployment of other forms of other technologies for carbon capture and storage, um, I think we should be looking at, and we should be seeing what of these methods are safe um, and that's that's the critical thing with, I think, with the geoengineering. And some people will be obviously highly suspicious and sceptical of these types of approaches, and I can understand why. Um, but I think it is something that we unfortunately have to. We're in a situation where we have to look at and have to work out whether there's net benefit for these approaches. And if there's not, you don't do it. But if there is, um, then I think... Um, we're at, a, we're at a point now, given the, the situation that we're in with climate change, um, that we should be um, definitely researching into these spaces to find out which are safe methods um, for us to look at the possibility of deploying. It's, yeah, it's a very complex and it's definitely it's a complex topic and it's definitely getting a lot more attention in the media um in the past few years in particular luke thanks very much for coming on and sharing the discussion regarding geoengineering pleasure thanks very much for having me that was luke taylor who is the director of the breakthrough national center for climate restoration
Tune in to 3CR on March 8th as we dish up another feast of radical ideas to end gender inequality. Centering the voices of First Nations, refugee, migrant women and gender diverse people. Challenging liberal and corporate feminisms in discussions on sovereignty, workers' rights, nuclear disarmament, environmental justice, animal rights, as well as music and performance. From 11pm Saturday, March 7 to midnight Sunday, March 8 on 3CR Digital, 8.55am and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Check the website for more details. Roasting the Patriarchy. Recipes for dismantling the system. Underneath the ground at the Olympic Dam mine, there is an old sleepy lizard. BHP is mining right into that lizard named Kulta, and it's not so sleepy anymore. The old frog and lizard, I really know. The mining company gotta go. The Lizard Returns Protestival 2020. Uncle Kev is putting out the call. This is an invitation to all people and protectors of the land and waters to get involved in the creation of Autonomous Zone as we move for peace and justice. BYO, your own creative response to the nuclear industry and BHP's water theft. Keep an eye on the Lizard Revenge page on Facebook or check out our website for history and info and updates on the lizardbitesback.net. The Lizard Returns Protestival, the 3rd to the 6th of July, Arabana Country. See you there. A 3CR supporter. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. And you're listening to 3CR. Next up we have a new segment. Mm. It's called Tram Thoughts. Thoughts that you only would have whilst being on the tram. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, brief ideas of what this segment is, Jess, well, Rob? Yeah, it's, it's kind of just dressing 
what we want to know more about. Mm. What an like an issue that we're interested sub- in. Yeah, that we're interested yeah. in really, and that we want to give the, an audience a bit mm. of an insight into what we've sort of researched through. We, that. we had yeah. a we had a big group chat, and we were like, <laughs> we need a segment which just allows us to do whatever we want mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. in detail for 10 minutes. So this is kind of an, a bit of a uh, interactive conversation. Yeah. yeah, Feel free to text us in with stuff. We can always, Absolutely. you know, and we want to engage you guys with what we're doing. And also like on Wednesday breakfast and all the other breakfast shows, we do a lot of sort of current news. And mm-hmm. so we're thinking of like having a bit more of a segment where it looks at more kind of like longer term yeah. news, trends. Analysis sort analysis, of. Analysis. Yeah. trying to be analysis. <laughs> <laughs> we're all analysts here. <laughs> So, yeah. with that, we well, might jump into yeah. our first triumphal. Sounds good. very much I won for that great song unfortunately it's train thoughts not tram thoughts mm. but pretend it says tram yeah. same thing really. same thing it's the same thing it's things have wheels and move and it's probably transport so <laughs> um so funnily enough I was on the tram in Melbourne and I was passing the state library and I was thinking you know this is my favorite space in Melbourne and I started to really consider why and I was kind of looking around and it's like it's a space where a lot of just civic life or stuff happens like there's people hanging out reading talking demonstrations people selling food like it's just a big mix of stuff and I realized there's actually very few places like this in mm. Melbourne. And actually, there's a history to that because for historical reasons, Melbourne doesn't have many public spaces um, because they didn't want spaces where protesting could occur. <laughs> and so that's why the State Library is actually one of the only few public spaces in Melbourne. Um, but I guess I wanted to ask, like, you know, when, suppose you have your day off and you just wanted to hang out with some friends in the city. Where are the different places that you would go to do that? Well, our recent, our recent like hangout spots, the Carlton Gardens, because mm-hmm. again, it's you know available to yep. us, our students, mm-hmm. uh, and we usually pick up some food and either yeah chill out there or maybe NGV or State Library, the free mm-hmm. exhibits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. we go check out them. Mm-hmm. That's that's probably how I spend my hours. Think, okay, yeah, yep. more mine similar to yours, the NGV. When you mentioned that, my probably favorite place, my go-to place, thinking time, going with friends, whatever. Because mm. I live quite, I don't live in the city or near it. I mm-hmm. tra- um, train it to Flinders and then take that walk across the bridge mm-hmm. to the NGV. Yep, it's my favorite. I'll just go and sit by the river, do that walk, or or Faulkner Park, mm-hmm. or yep. like near South Yarra. So usually Parklands or mm. nice walk across yeah. the bridge. Yeah. Well, I think like collectively, you've pretty much pointed out the only few. <laughs> free public spaces that we actually have in Melbourne. Because if you think of anywhere else, like I was catching up with a friend being like, let's hang out, but we don't want to spend any money. Mm. And it's actually quite 
hard to mm. find a space mm. to do that where you mm. don't feel uncomfortable. Like, you know, there's only food mall halls or malls and then you even if you sit there you feel uncomfortable not having bought something when you're sitting there and it's kind of this interesting discussion about this idea of mollification um so everything mollification mollification <laughs> um this idea that like this places that you have to go where you have to feel like you have to buy something yeah. rather than just a place where you can just sit and enjoy civic life or just enjoy relaxing with your friends and it's I don't know. It's this interesting thing where I, like, I personally feel guilty. I don't feel welcome when I'm mm. sitting in like a food court and I don't buy something. I feel like I'm not part of that space. feels less real as it would as if you're in a public space. Yeah. Tax yeah. Like, when there's a tax on it, it's just like it's not... It doesn't feel genuine. You definitely, genuine, yeah. you definitely feel guilty because you, yeah. you, you are guilty. You are guilty <laughs> under the cafeteria's minds. Mm. I, I found it really interesting too because the point I was thinking about with this guilt is I actually feel resentful when I go out with friends. Yeah. And we've been around the city for like three or four hours, and I'm like, I need a drink of something. Like, mm. I'm dying here. Mm. But they're kind of, they won't spend money, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. But we go to a cafe, and so I'm sitting there with my cappuccino or whatever, or just drink, mm. being like, Are you gonna, are we gonna, are you gonna buy anything? Mm. <laughs> like, mm. You're just gonna watch me drink? And you know, because I always want, you know, they'll have a drink of my thing or they'll bite my thing. It's kind of like I end up buying food for them. And it, just so it's kind of like a weird yeah, yeah you feel comfortable and i'm just kind of like i'm starting to resent this but also i have no justification to resent you because i understand that we're poor you know we don't have enough disposable income yeah <laughs> even on that resentment, but it's like a, yeah it's a weird sort of feel yeah like with that like with my friends and i like i've said the points before where i'd like to go for public spaces but mm. when we go out it's like okay so what's on in melbourne and everything that's on in melbourne is like a paid sort of event mm. or mm. as you were saying like where we're going to meet up like at the new place or so and so like it's never like, oh, where should we go and just hang? Yeah. Like, where do we... Like, obviously, we don't want to be spending money. Mm. Our current... Mm. Budgets you know, do not budget, allow. Yeah. Yes. But it's just... When I try and find something to do in Melbourne, it's something to do that involves money. Yeah. yeah. And so it's interesting. That's how a lot of public spaces are now developed, mm. is through a kind of monetary transaction attached to them. But then the second really interesting type of public space or pseudo-public space that starts to develop more is something called, rather endearingly, called a POPS, which is a privately owned public space. Oh, it's one of those fun acronyms yes. which just, as you expand it... Is not fun. It's not as fun. <laughs> <much> fun. <laughs> yeah. So it has a really interesting history. Um, so forgive me as an urbanist, but I find this fascinating. Um, so it actually started in New York. There was a building... It's sort of famous in the architectural world called the Seagram Building in 1958. Um, and Seagram is a whiskey company and they wanted to build this new building, which was all transparent and glass. I had this idea of like transparency and people can see into the business, so on and so forth. Um, but in addition to that, they actually had this giant public plaza at the front. So the building only took up about half the space of the block. And the original reason was so that then people who were walking by would then admire the building and be like, oh, wow, how amazing wow. is this building in Seagram? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but then it actually, the space started to become so popular. And this space was essentially owned by the Seagram company. It was okay. seen as sort of a giving back to the public. So the, the actual idea was to give back to the public. It wasn't like a money-making venture at that point? Well, it was kind of twofold. It was to okay. give back to the public, yeah. to give a space. But then also, by giving back a space, it meant that you could appreciate the building yes. more. And yeah. then that gives money, a good... Money, money, money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's multiple, multiple things going Around on. Around reputation. <laughs> but the thing that's really interesting is that after that, because the space became so popular, in 19... They, the New York City Council... Uh, 
New York City Planning Authority decided mm. to change their 1916 planning resolution. And so now what they started to do from then on was offer incentives to developers, saying that if you give a bit of a public space, which you own, you can then go hire in your building. Oh, and so we start to get these kind of offsets that start to emerge. And wow. this is the birth of Pops. Yeah. <laughs> the Pop was born. Um, and fast forward to today, you see Pops everywhere so you'll notice them like often in the front of tall buildings there'll be kind of like a public space which feels kind of like a public space but you feel kind of uncomfortable in Mm. um and these aren't actually public spaces they're Mm. privately owned public spaces Mm. and so you've got these across melbourne sydney london new york so many different cities key example in melbourne would be federation square yeah Yeah. so federation square is actually not a public space Mm. it's owned by an entity called federation square proprietary limited which is then owned by the state government, but as a public space itself, it is actually privately owned. Mm. And so people would have remembered last year when, or two years ago, when there was the discussion about putting the Apple store in Fed Square. People saying, how can they do this? This is a public space. It's not a commercial space. Well, actually, no, it's not. It's actually a public, it's a privately owned space. And so they can do as they will more or less. Um, But it's just interesting. And now the interesting thing about the Apple case study is that Apple as a company with their new sort of like big flagship stores are creating what they call, they're actually branding them as town squares. So they have this strategy where they're going through cities across the world and finding uh, private spaces or publicly owned Mm. pops across the world, which are kind of struggling. So Fed Square is actually struggling as a pops. Mm. Um, And there are many others across the world. And so Apple comes in being like, let us put a store in your town square. Oh, sorry, in your... um, in your public space, call it a town square and encourage people to use it. Mm. And so it's a really kind of interesting evolution of the pops where... Yeah, it's like the McDonald effect. It is, yeah. I think. Kind of. But the, yeah. but the Apple's branding them as like a public space. Yeah, They're saying yeah. you, you go to an Apple store to hang out. The yeah. Yeah. When I have been to like overseas, I just vividly remember because I did actually have to go and get an iPhone in Spain mm. when I was in Spain in Madrid. And I, either Madrid or Barcelona, I can't remember either or, but in their public space, there was. And that was back a few years ago. So mm. this has been going on for a fair while. Yeah. But it, I just do vividly remember there was an Apple store there and tourists especially would be walking in, wandering in. And it mm. was just so odd to me it, because, like, obviously I was there for in that public space trying to enjoy it. Mm. Obviously I was going to Apple, but it was a public space and mm. Apple was there. It was just an odd sort of thing, me knowing that was my destination, but then actually assessing the entire yeah. yeah, and the thing I find really interesting about it is that it's kind of augmenting our understanding of what a public space is. We've yeah. firstly been more uh, uh, sort of shifted in understanding what public spaces are through pops, mm-hmm. and now it's kind of being evolved again through having stores kind of bleed out into public spaces, and they're designed to feel very natural in their extension. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you actually don't really know that you're walking into a store, yet you're kind of encouraged into this yeah, and that's that, that's that blending of brand life within, you know, real like exactly. consumer life, mm-hmm. which is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it's just a shame that you don't have spaces in the city which can just be non-monetary well, just like the other point that i was uh, was bringing up and sorry rob if i'm jumping no <laughs> no but um of course commercially private owned spaces that leads to um discrimination against undesirables mm. right and so it, it's like we've got these visions of public spaces but it's kind of like people who do not fit the mold of what is a basically a customer in that space yeah uh, removed forcibly by security, and that was a point that was raised with me recently. But it's like that's why these these public spaces are so clinical in some ways because yeah. they they it are tightly curated, and- which exactly. is terrifying because yeah. that just allows for any sort of intolerance to just mm-hmm. fester. Yeah, which is exactly why I love something like 
uh, like the State Library or other parks because it is open for everyone. Mm. And I think that's something that's being lost within cities. So yeah. that's my tram thought for this week. <laughs> tram thoughts. Well, we'll go out again on the theme because it's just such a banger. It's so great. It and then we'll be back at 8 o'clock. Jessica Morrison from Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network is now joining us to discuss the vigil held on the Parliament House lawns on the 26th of February. This vigil comes at a time when Prime Minister Scott Morrison has, at Israel's request, interceded with the International Criminal Court, otherwise known as the ICC. The vigil was held for Palestinian human rights with reflection of the steps taken by the Morrison government and the community calling for international law to be upheld. The Israeli president undertook the official visit to Australia and the federal parliament on the 21st to the 27th of February. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for joining us on Wednesday Breakfast. Always great to be here with 3CR. <laughs> um, I guess we'll start off by asking, or before we speak about the vigil, I'd just like to get a background into exactly how Prime Minister Scott Morrison has interceded with the ICC at Israel's request, especially in the last week. Absolutely. So for the last five years the International Criminal Court has been investigating potential war crimes that have happened in Palestine, regardless of who committed them. Mm. Um, so it's been looking at the behaviour of the, internet, the Israeli military in killing people in Gaza. It's been having a look at Israel forcibly transferring their uh, Palestinians out of their ter- territory mm-hmm. and transferring their own population in. It's been having a look at uh, in terms of what Palestinian actors have done in terms of due process for their own communities, but also what Palestinian armed groups have done. So it spent five whole years looking at it, and it concluded in December last year that, A, there is evidence that war crimes have been committed and it wants to prosecute, and the second thing is that it, it believes that it, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction. So uh, Palestine has been a member of the International Criminal Court for five years now. Um, But given that Palestine has been recognised as a state by the UN, but not all states do, and Israel hasn't uh, acceded to the International Criminal Court, then the prosecutor said, I want to just check with the pre-trial court that I do have jurisdiction. So as part of that process, they invited comment from any party um, to talk about that. And Australia, as a member of the International Criminal Court, was one of six countries that said, yeah, no, I'm not sure we're really up with that 
uh, decision and we don't think that the court should have jurisdiction here. We don't recognise the state of Palestine and we don't think you should either. And therefore, you shouldn't have any jurisdiction to hear these war crimes. Yeah, I guess it is quite, it's phenomenal, the evidence against Israel in, in, with Palestine. Um, it is quite shocking for very, a lot of people that Australia is one of those six countries. Now, the vigil included many speakers. Um, Lee, uh, Adam Bant, MP for the Australian Greens, um, Nasser Mashni, who's a really well-known Palestinian refugee and Australian businessman. And, um, and like 3CR presenter. Yes, yes, of course he is. Yeah, a bit of a promo there. And um, uh, off the top of my, Dr. Sue Warham, I'm pretty sure, medical who Wareham, works for yep. Warham, who works for the Medical Association for Prevention of War. Um, so they're just to name a few. Um, in response to the vigil, people have come out, especially uh, Adam Band, who I noted, he tweeted that... Um, Australia must stand up for human rights and not join Trump in blocking Palestine's case in international criminal court. Um, And that Australia must recognise Palestine and call out Trump's unlawful plans and push for peace and justice. How did the vigil go and what was predominantly spoken about? Who were the other speakers there? Yeah, it it was an amazing vigil. Uh, It was a cold and wet kind Mm. of Canberra morning, but the community came out in force, which was amazing. Mm. We had great community support, like the Medical Association for Prevention of War and other community and faith groups and unions, ACT, were there as well. So it's always amazing to have the union movement. Mm. So there was a great number of people from the Canberra community. And there were also a wonderful group of parliamentary allies that came. So Mm. there were actually 13 politicians came out of Parliament House and came and stood with the vigil. So that was really exciting. And so Adam Spant, as he said, spoke for the Greens. There was a whole swag of Labor parliamentarians and Susan Templeman, who came to Palestine with us a few years ago, mm. she also spoke um, on behalf of the Labor colleagues and um, Andrew Wilkie also stood up as an independent. So it was amazing. And all of them were saying, this is a no-brainer. We all agree with, you know, that war crimes should be prosecuted. We all agree with that. And we need to ensure that Israel, like any other country, is held accountable for what it does. And as I said, Palestinian actors as well. But just because... Palestine has not been able to get full independence because Israel has stymied all the negotiations. That doesn't mean that it shouldn't be entitled to justice. Mm, definitely, I think it was just such a good thing seeing so many people coming together for with so many differences for the for the one cause. Um, on the... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And look, it's really exciting to see more and more parliamentarians who are willing to stand up for Palestine mm-hmm. and to say enough is enough. Yeah. Um, so we have traditionally in Australia been Israel right or wrong, mm-hmm. um, but we're really excited to see that um, that's really shifting in Australia. And we think Israel is a country like any other country mm-hmm. and should be accountable for what it does like any other country. Definitely. I think it just it made some very warm thoughts coming out of that entire vigil, which was great to see. Um, yeah. On the, we'll just backtrack a little bit. So on the 20th of February, before the president of Israel did come over, the PM, our PM, Morrison, he gave the media release saying the president's visit will be an opportunity to build on this relationship, discuss further cooperation and help us forge new and lasting connections. Do you believe that this hints that the president's visit will lead to Australia aiding Israel with continual breaches against the ICC or do you think that what we just said everyone coming together do you think it's quite ho- it's it's getting a bit more hopeful no, this is clearly the most pro-Israel government mm. and rapidly one-eyed liquid end of the pro-Israeli government mm. um, that, that we have ever seen. In fact, it's probably not right to say they're pro, 
pro-Israel, they're anti-Palestine. Mm. So Australia is one of the very few countries that welcomed Trump's announcement on on Palestine, which decimated any chance of a Palestinian state if mm. that were to be implement, implemented. And then Australia was just one of six countries that are seeking to intervene in the International Criminal Court. So we have a rabidly anti Palestine government right now and we are not holding our breath for Scott Morrison and his colleagues to do anything good for Palestinian human rights. Um, so there is a change in the scene but unfortunately the, the kingpin at the moment uh, doesn't seem to be able to see past um, his friend of Israel um, and, and able to see the other side. So that's really disappointing. So we don't think we'll see a change under this government. Um, and so that's been really disappointing and shocking to see Australia becoming even more anti-Palestinian than it already has been. Yeah, and that disappointment does, I guess, come with the business leaders also coming on and being invited to this visit to Australia, but uh, we'll just change it to the another topic of this. Benjamin, mm-hmm. Net- Benjamin Netanyahu is now leading in the polls in the Israeli presidential election. Netanyahu, yeah. has, uh, as we all know, has a long history against the Palestinians, um, pointing to, I guess, the possible continuation of the unlawful treatment of Palestinians in Israel. Do you believe this to be true and how do you think the mistreatment of Palestinians could continue under Netanyahu? Yeah, so look, it's been really disappointing to see um, that Israelis are continuing to vote for uh, um, Benjamin Netanyahu um, and given all his gross Mm -hmm. violations Mm -hmm. of human rights and also the fact that he's under corruption charges. (laughs) Uh, So you would think that that might be enough to step away from the man. Um, But, but, you know, armed conflict does all sorts of things and Israelis have been whipped up into a, a... a, um, an environment of fear about mm. Palestinians. Um, unfortunately, Netanyahu's main contender, Benny Gantz, is no better. Mm. Um, in he's saying he would implement the Trump proposal. He was saying he would uh, expand the settlements. There's there's nothing kind of you know progressive um, or pro-Palestinian human rights about the main contender. Mm. The fascinating thing about the Israeli election is the third major party um, is a group called the Arab List. So they are the Palestinians within the Israeli parliament, the third largest party. But both Netanyahu and Gantz have said that they would not form a coalition with them. Mm. So this party that represents 20% of the Israeli population, Palestinians who are Israeli citizens, they will not form a coalition with. Mm. So and then and they've also said that they won't form a coalition with each other. So what that leaves, unfortunately, is the crazies of the extreme right, mm. many of whom say just the most extreme things. One of the candidates got um, a picture of an Israeli. T- t- terrorists on their on their wall, a Jewish, you know, terrorist, yeah. I should say, um, who massacred a whole lot of Palestinians in a mosque yeah. in Hebron. Um, so there's just a whole lot of extremists and um, it looks like Netanyahu and Gantz with their um, intense competition between themselves and meaning that they won't, mm. they won't even countenance something that's a less extreme government. Mm, yeah, it's just so things are not going to come from within. Change is not yeah. going to come from within Israel at the moment. Um, people are too fractured and too scared, and unfortunately, because of the narrative that goes on in Israel, mm. very few people are able to see just the destructiveness of their own government for their own well-being as well as for Palestinians. Mm, definitely, I think that disarray and that fracturing is just is something that does always. Keep change from coming in. Um, on that note, though, with helping the Palestinian cause, 
what do you at APAN believe will help help the Palestinians amidst this um, new peace plan um, and Australia looking to continue to have strong relations with Israel? Like, what do you what, what can help? What what can we in Melbourne do to help the Palestinians? Yeah, absolutely. So change isn't going to come from Israel, mm-hmm. and clearly under this government, it's not going to come from our Australian government. And it's not going to come from Trump. Mm. Um, so the place that it's going to come from is a bottom up. Mm. So until pol- uh, politicians, a bit like marriage equality, until politicians know that the community backs Palestinian human rights and they must act, then they will not. So it's up to us to ensure that we're being as loud and strong as we can um, as community members to build a movement for Palestinian human rights. So I would love everybody to go on APAN's website and become a member of APAN, apan.org.au. Um, we're doing all sorts of things to build the movement and every member helps. So we'd love for you to sign up, apan.org.au. And the other exciting thing is in Melbourne is just this week, a brand new advocacy group has formed. It's meeting monthly um, and it would love to have anybody who's concerned for Palestinian human rights to be involved. And they have just put themselves up on Facebook as Palestine Melbourne. So jump on Facebook, find Free Palestine Melbourne. Uh, They're planning a whole lot of stuff coming up and it would be fantastic if people could get behind them. Great. Thank you so much for all that information, Jessica. We'll hopefully talk to you soon. Thank you. Lovely. Thanks, Jessica, and everybody there. The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival... February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. And the time is 8.12. We're going into our last interview for the day. Starting off, Jess, I wanted to ask you, this next interview is around a a topic that's quite close to my heart. Um, I was wondering, what do you think about parkour? I genuinely am the biggest nerd for it, and I am so excited. When when Edwin told me that we were having this guest on our show, um, I I, I nearly squealed. It was quite (laughs) exciting. But parkour is just, I am a big nerd for it. And I also think Mm. it's just really cool how it developed Mm. and where it's going now. Yeah, I, I, I say my background with it is I love rock climbing. And so I used to watch parkour and be like, ah, that is city city rock climbing. <laughs> but I, I don't know, images that come to mind are usually often male-dominated or yeah. kind of very risk-dominated. So we were having this discussion around this earlier, but like it's this weird juxtaposition of being like, that's the coolest thing ever, mm. but at the same time being like, that's the most dangerous thing ever. So I feel like we've all got this idolised view of parkour, yeah. but we all... But like we don't mm, actually think we can do it, like that we're exactly. not quite capable yeah. or have the ability to. So, yeah. so we have Kel in studio today mm-hmm. from uh, Motion in Melbourne, which is a Melbourne group that is dedicated to parkour, <laughs> the art of parkour, um, to kind of break down those those stereotypes. Yeah. Hi, Kel. 
Hello, thanks for having me. So our first kind of question, I suppose, is how did you get involved in parkour and then uh, Motion in Melbourne? Where did that come from? Uh, I've been coaching parkour for about uh, five years and training mm-hmm. for a little bit longer than that. Um, my original sort of impetus to learn parkour myself was it came out of a, um, a quite traumatic um, injury that eventually led to uh, sort of threats of surgery and and made mm. me feel afraid of the world and afraid of re-injuring myself and and after a while I I got sick of being afraid of the world and looked around for ways to effectively challenge my own perception of risk and danger and fear and parkour was the practice that uh, kind of allowed me to do that um, and just in the last eighteen months or so we've started. Melbourne in Motion, which is our um, organisation uh, mm. to run classes in Melbourne. And basically our founding principle was to take on exactly those misconceptions that you've had that um, that parkour is a male-dominated or um, for, for young white boys. Um, <laughs> and also to, to build spaces that are welcoming and accessible and allow people to come from whatever position they are. Because it is scary to go to your first parkour class it's scary to to do anything for the first time um so we uh, work to dismantle any barriers to um to accessibility or participation that people may have yeah i was thinking you i mean your traditional videos of parkour online are people jumping mm. off buildings mm. and i'm wondering how do you go from a starting point of yep. like i haven't done exercise in, since i quit high school <laughs> uh to to you know so, something uh, not, not necessarily Sky jumping, but yeah, um, yeah. something more dramatic, I suppose. Um, yeah, well, the the sort of basis in um, in YouTube that parkour has is is a double edged sword in a lot of ways because it does it does uh, give people this spectacular view that engages their um, emotions and makes them feel um, feel excited about it. But at the same time, it can present a image of parkour that is. Uh, divorced from the reality of it basically Mm. because there's so much editing obviously um you see a three minute video and it took 65 um attempts and you don't see those so you everything we do we start at um ground level and we start in building up uh the basic skills and muscle memories and you know bone density and all of that 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 allows you to take those impacts and there's no reason that you need to move uh away from that low impact if that's not for you cool and then if you want to start um, challenging yourself with bigger jumps, there's ways to do that safely. So one of the um, most important fa- uh, bases and founding principles of parkour is longevity. And if you'll um, excuse my French pronunciation, there's a, there's a little motto, être et dure, meaning to be and to last. Um, so we always train in ways that protect the body, uh, build up muscle, uh, muscle mass, bone density, um, and use techniques to minimise impact on the body. Mm. Um, and so nothing, and, and also ways to assess risk, the, the difference between risk and danger. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, that training for, training so you'll be able to train for the rest of your life is a really important part of, of parkour. That, that's really interesting for me because I, I love personal fitness. And I suppose when listening to you talk about parkour, it's very much that strength of knowledge and knowing your body and having that discipline. Could you kind of talk to us about the advantages of that? Because it's, yeah. it's kind of getting in touch with your body in a very different way to the way we're used to, I suppose. Absolutely. So there's a number of, uh, of ways that is different to maybe um, traditional fitness mm. things. One of them is that it's in, it's in your 
environment is in your urban spaces. Um, and so you get to explore those in a way that is uh, empowering or gives you confidence in moving in those ways. But also there's something about um, when you walk through a gym door, mm. I think your brain um, shuts, you know, Not puts down. down a little curtain and says, this is where fitness happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you take it outdoors, it allows, it allows those skills and strengths that you develop to more closely relate to the rest of your life. Um, and, and also, yeah, um, parkour is not a competitive discipline. So, mm. um, you don't have the pressures of c- competition that some other sports can have mm. where you may be pushing yourself for reasons other than, um, internal motivation. So you don't have, I'm only, I'm going to try and lift something to beat the other guy. Um, so you can really control any, um, any risks to yourself and also, uh, pay attention to all of those internal motivations that, um, that are helping you to move forward. Mm. Touching yeah. on that, touching on that competition element and, and that, uh, bringing that back to like the boys club, the toxic masculinity that sometimes surrounds parkour. Mm-hmm. I mean, opening up this group, working with people outside of those, against stereotypes, mm-hmm. what have you done to kind of like break down the, that, those myth, myths around it? Because it is very mm. much seen as entrenched as almost toxic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah or um, at least that, that's some of the times the perceptions of it. It can be. And so, so some of what we uh, do is, is approach social media or the um, media that we put out and, and emphasise that it parkour is for everybody. Mm. And so... Um, widen the people that are represented in that way mm-hmm. um we also run specialized workshops so we've worked with people like um, parents of gender diverse children and um you know older women so that we can provide spaces for people that they know they're welcome that are built especially for them and mm. that as a first as a first entry point can be really useful because you know if you're if you're 80 years old, you're unlikely to turn up to a uh, parkour jam with 14-year-old boys. Um, <laughs> and also developing classes that are for specific people. So we run Parkour Mature, that is a low-impact um, classes, especially for older people. Mm-hmm. Um, and running Parkour for Beginners courses so that people know that they get a full full range of, of the basic techniques. Um, and, and we're always open to any further ideas that people mm. have. So sending emails. Um, if you've got a community that finds uh, finds it difficult to uh, access parkour or you've got an idea, um, we're always open to that. So I guess you said before it is quite daunting getting up, going ready to the gym. Like I know when I go to the gym, yeah. I sit in my car for like 15 minutes oh trying God, to prep myself to yeah. get in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, your classes and your courses, where are they? Where do they actually take place? Is it an indoor, mm-hmm. or do you, can you choose like what sort of course or lesson you'd like to do, or, or is it outside in the urban sort of environment? Yeah, um, all our all our classes at the moment are outside, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's really important to start your training uh, parkour training outdoors. So there are some good um, facilities where you can train indoors, and maybe in the future Melbourne in Motion will be able to um, start one of those. But as far as your first steps in parkour, I'd always recommend doing that outdoors because if you start indoors, it can be extra scary to then turn around and go back outdoors. Um, um, yeah, that yeah. would be a trick. <laughs> yeah, so it's good to have um, 
indoor complementary training mm-hmm. that can be about breaking down skills or it can be, you know, weightlifting and whatnot. I, mm-hmm. I do um, weightlifting for myself. But it's as far as the, the heart of your parkour training, um, outdoors is the way to go. That's yeah. sick. Yeah. And um, as you said, there are a variety of classes for different people. Now we can follow you on Facebook and on your website. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, www.melbinmotion, M-E-L-B-I-N-M-O-T-I-O-N.com. <laughs> and if I suppose, because we have a very diverse audience listening, if you were trying to, trying to suggest to people why they should get involved in parkour and like one simple reason, mm-hmm. what would be kind of like your, your like, this is why, this is why everyone needs to try this? I think that would probably have to do with the way that we all own the space around us and mm. we all belong in this city and every person listening has every right to our own city and our our um, our engagement with that space. And so taking steps to um, overcome the sort of oppressive nature of city living, mm. it, it can be a really um, a really exciting way to to feel more connected. That's awesome because that also brings to mind as this almost like an act of resistance, you know. Yeah. Which is what yeah. parkour kind of is born out of is that mm. idea of doing things where people don't usually do things. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and yeah, experimenting. Yeah. Fun and awesome. Thanks very much, Kel, for coming in. Thanks so much for having me.
The federal government has just announced plans for a radioactive waste dump in Kimba on Bangala country. BHP is expanding the Olympic Dam uranium mine. Now is the time to join the radioactive resistance. Hit the road with Friends of the Earth Melbourne's Nuclear Free Collective as we travel to frontline communities and see how the nuclear industry impacts people. The radioactive exposure tour will run from April 10 to 19 this year. More details on melbournefoe.org.au slash radtour2020 or contact us on radexposuretour at gmail.com. Foe's Nuclear Free Campaign is a 3CR supporter. And with that funky uh, community service announcement, we kind of come to the wrap-up of our show. So what have we had on today? So uh, starting off the show, we listened to Simon from Geelong talking about this bicycle path. Mm -hmm. And let's hope they keep the bicycle path. I think so too, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Then at 7.30, we spoke to Luke Taylor, the director of the Sustainable Living Foundation. We discussed the ethics and dilemmas surrounding large-scale atmospheric interventions Mm, to tackle the climate crisis. Absolutely. And for our first tram thoughts ever... Uh We discussed public spaces and the implications of them. Uh, then coming up to 8 o'clock with Jess's interview. Yeah, so we spoke to Jessica Morrison from the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. We just spoke to her about the recent vigil held on Parliament mm. lawns for Palestinians and the Israeli government. Was it weird interviewing another Jessica? It was so weird. I actually, when I spoke to her on the phone, she's like, oh, this is so strange. I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to... Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a weird feeling. Yeah. <laughs> it was a weird time. <laughs> and finally, we just finished with Melbourne in Motion uh, talking to Kel, uh, parkour, everything cool. Mm-hmm. Highlight from today's show, Jess? I just really liked that last interview that we did have with Kel. It was... It sort of linked into our tram thought about urbanisation and the spaces and freedom to be able to do that public thing, you know? That's It was quite empowering listening to that last interview and joining into it too. Absolutely, absolutely. I think the highlight from my today from from show is also tram thoughts. uh, (laughs) Gotta be Rob just nerding out on the, like, the historical information. Nailed it. That was sick. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, that's our Wednesday. Again, as we said, this is the 4th of March, which... Wow, we're already there. 2020. And we'll talk to you next week. Uh, Next up is Stick Together, and thanks to Earth Matters who started off the show before us. See ya.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.